Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'd also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about autism stories. On today's episode, Michael Macedo joins us to discuss being a therapist, his experience as an outpatient clinician, and running for his college cross-country team. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Michael, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. I wanted to start off our conversation and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? So my story probably begins when I was around toddler age. I wasn't really making good eye contact. I had deficits in fine gross motor skills. I spoke and read at a very early age, but didn't walk until I was probably around 24 months or so. When I was probably around five, I was, you know, very emotionally, you know, deregulated. I would fall apart if there was a change in daily routine. I had to do things I didn't really understand or want to do. I just hard time with flexible thinking and OCD symptoms. I have OCD also, by the way, were prominent at this age. My behavior was really kind of mistaken as defiant, but it was really rooted in fear. When I was eight, my family moved uh, from Omaha, Nebraska to Western Rhode Island. I was born in Rhode Island, but I moved out there like before I could, you know, when I was like not even two. But, you know, moving to Rhode Island, it really augmented my uh, symptoms. You know, I was getting used to a completely new environment, seeing trees for the first time. My parents took me to Bradley Hospital. Uh, It's our nation's first children's psychiatric hospital. And in 1998, I believe, I was diagnosed with Asperger's, OCD, and anxiety. And I want to say I was in third grade at the time. Uh, I was around nine in 1998. All I remember is my school had me see a speech pathologist. I had a one-on-one teacher's aide, separate teacher for math, and permission to go on walks around the hallway if I became too overwhelmed. I definitely later found out that uh, neither my parents or my school really knew anything about the spectrum of autism, especially, you know, Asperger's at that time. And they were really kind of just learning through me and observing me. Now, you are a therapist. And from what I understand, attending your own IEP meetings were a factor in leading you down this path. So what happened um, at these meetings that made you want to help others with a similar neurology? I don't know if I really remember anything that happened from my uh, IEP meetings per se, but right before junior year, I began seeing a speech pathologist in school who helped sort of refine my social skills. They taught me that I could spend time with my teammates after practice. I was a I was a year round athlete, but I had 
like next to no friends and didn't really do anything social other than, you know, cross country and track practice. This speech pathologist also educated me about Asperger's. And while I knew I was, you know, air quotes, mildly autistic, I never really got to meet others like me on a similar level. People who would have slipped through the cracks if they weren't already diagnosed. So I began to educate myself more about it, have conversations with my parents about me and my symptoms growing up, and even spent some time with, you know, another autistic student, a grade below me, almost as a mentor. So I kind of, for the first time, felt like I understood myself a bit more and felt that I had to tell others, anyone who would listen, um, about how people with this level of autism think and feel every day. I channeled this into volunteering in a special ed ADL classroom at my school, volunteering with Special Olympics, you know, just wanting to be known as something other than just, you know, a runner in my school. But what really kind of shaped me and, you know, kind of my uh, future career was I knew I wanted to be a therapist when I was probably a junior. I was an incredibly mediocre student in high school. By the time I was a senior, I just didn't even try. Like, it just, you know, I just didn't know it worked. I didn't know how to study or really... I've never been... I've never really fit into the, the school structure, so I had some really bad senioritis my senior year. But, you know, I got into college, and the summer before I started college, my guidance counselor helped me apply for be a delegate for the Rhode Island Youth Leadership Forum for students with disabilities. It was like a three, four day overnight, but it really just, it changed my life. It catapulted me. I was around people I've never met before. I it was a fresh start. I got to, you know, some of these people I'm still very close friends with to this day. And, you know, we learned about certain facets of independent living. You know, we learned about advocacy. You know, I learned about uh, Justin Dart and the ADA. You know, we got to take a trip to the state house, see how inaccessible it is. <laughs> and uh, we had to go, uh, some folks, you know, were in uh, wheelchairs and walkers and everything. And, you know, we had to go through the back into the basement and everything like that. That kind of tells you everything. And yeah, I mean, it was really the kind of thing that really kind of helped define sort of my interest and you know it also helped too that my my college cross country and track coach was indeed a social worker by trade and uh councilman in providence with so you know a lot of the social welfare piece and everything so you know i think it all kind of started from seeing that speech pathologist mm -hmm. now i've come across many um autistic people that are interested in exploring careers in being a therapist in supporting people with their uh, mental health needs, what would be your advice to them if they're thinking about pursuing this career path? I would just say that if this is an interest of yours, and I think every anyone who's, I don't mean to make assumptions, but anyone who's in this industry is in this industry for a reason. And I would just, you know, encourage folks to really focus on what that reason is what that gut feeling is because i mean 
more so now than maybe when I was pursuing this, entering grad school uh, probably a decade ago. This isn't one of those, you know, quote unquote, disciplines that are not suitable for autistic people. You know, uh, back then it was, you know, oh, you're going into a field where you're working with people and can you read social cues? They kind of expect us to, you know, work with computers or something with video games or any of those other stereotypes. But no, I mean, I think that anyone going into this field should really remind themselves of just why they're interested in this. Think about examples of maybe their own form of expressing empathy. You know, there's always kind of been that narrative uh, of autistic people not really understanding empathy. I, I, we all know that's not the case. Uh, I mean, it's you know, maybe some folks have to really kind of learn how to use it, but we all have it. And if anything, a lot of folks express it and feel it quite profoundly. And that can really help w when working with people, understanding at a very you know, really deep kind of level of maybe what they're going through, what their needs are. One thing I always kind of love about my career is that uh, it's checking for inferences. It's trying to get information, but obviously a more therapeutic way, like if I'm working on a mental status exam or any kind of a clinical intake, or really just trying to get an idea of someone's home environment. I'm a huge systems theory clinician, so I always want to find that stuff out. I mean, my ability to retain that information and really my it feels like my work you know i have horrible working memory in any other facet of my life but when i'm doing this it actually works i would just say that and i would just really encourage people to understand that even though this is an industry that is you know it's healthcare, it's mental health care it unfortunately doesn't mean that the people who facilitate it understand autism. And I know that might be a kind of a broad statement here, but, you know, in my personal experience, I've had multiple, even grad school, like, I think I was like the only person with a, you know, documented ASD. And I always felt that I kind of had to keep my professors on their toes. Any place I worked, the feeling that, you know, you're, they're not really expecting someone like you to be at, within their ranks is really quite palpable. So, you know, over the years, I've had a difficult time, you know, really advocating for myself because I've been aware of all the limitations I've been told of workplace supports. That's a rabbit hole that I, I could talk to you for over an hour on that. I'm really on a I've had some, unfortunately, some negative work experiences recently. So that's definitely something that I really want to write more about and speak more about. But uh, I, you know, I won't go into that too much. But that would just be another thing I would say, you know, really understand or recognize your ability to and right to self-advocate. Hmm. The ADA applies in all areas. Now, you were talking a little bit earlier about being big into systems theory. So 
Can you can you talk a little bit more about um, why that is so important, systems theory? I just like to kind of think it is. I used to do some EOS before that. You know, when I was undergrad and everything, I was really going to a lot of homes and everything. And I mean, I think I, I really just sort of observed just a child's behavior when they're around their parents, when they're at home versus when they're removed from their home environment. I've witnessed increase in stress, stress-related behavior. Some I've seen some guardian and parental reactions to sensory-seeking behavior that has really kind of been misunderstood in a lot of ways. And really, again, the, the kid's environment, the level of attention from parents, guardians, and just, you know, their, their environment in general, you know, safety, loudness, things like that. Just the, the sensory element of that, it can play a large role in not just a child's mental health, but also, you know, their physical health too, their medical now, you have experience as an outpatient clinician, and something you've done in regards to that is provide home-based emergency outpatient services. So I'm wondering, what do you think providers need to understand about autistic people to better support them in those situations? I would really just say, you know, dig deeper than just simply treating the overarching social deficits, you know, like anxiety, depression, etc. For autism, the most effective treatments available today are some of the larger ones are, you know, ABA, you know, the Lovas model, OT, speech therapy, physical therapy, and pharmacological therapy, and CBT. But, well, ABA has been, in a lot of ways, proven to not always be helpful, but in in some cases harmful and uh, can have certain impacts on, you know, other mental health issues down the road. You know, OT, you know, it's obviously for sensory integration necessary. SLT, PT, and, you know, psychotropic meds, you know, they kind of help in their own individual way. But what seems to sometimes be left out of the conversation is, you know, clinical behavioral support. I mean, although parents with or patients, I guess, with, again, air quotes, mild ASD, may rely on treatments that improve social and communicative ability, but, you know, patients with more severe cases often require individual supports with more intensive behavioral interventions and psychotropic meds, obviously, when necessary. For acute episodes, aggressive, self-injurious behaviors that are common among, you know, some children, young adults with ASDs, I mean, some of these services might not be enough. I kind of learned that psychiatric hospitalizations occur, they can occur more frequently among this population. I think something like 10% of autistic youth experience some kind of psychiatric hospitalization before age 21. I mean, again, I don't have the figures in front of me. I just, this is something that I've learned. And the average length of stay is usually longer for people with ASD than with ASDs and other, you know, conditions. 
I wondered, you know, why does it take an emergency to get these services? And even after it does, uh, you know, are these folks receiving outpatient care once they step down from EOS? I mean, that's really up to their discretion, but everything's just really at the behest of their insurance providers, some of which, you know, like primarily commercial plans like Tufts, BCBS, United, they really, you know, they require weekly authorization. I used to get authorizations every week, and they they really kind of call the shots on the weekly number of hours for these services, whether it's doable for, you know, the families or not. I don't know. I just kind of wonder, like, what are some home-based pre-hospitalization options for, you know, children and adults? I mean, there's some. I just recently learned of, you know, executive function coaching, uh, even for adults. And, you know, there, there are some, but, you know, there's also, like, non-clinical HPTS and PASS. And, I mean, I've done those jobs, but, you know, it's the clinical supervisor isn't going into the home every week necessarily. And, you know, really it's more times than not, it's the college kid kind of going in there and trying to de-escalate and exercise behavior modification. The focus is mainly emotional regulation, you know, that kind of thing and seeking safety. Many, you know, many kids are sensory seeking, but I don't know. Home-based outpatient psychotherapy services that don't require an emergency It'd be nice that that's more of a thing. And it seems to be like where I work right now, you know, it's outpatient, but, you know, there's some folks who, you know, some clinicians who do home-based. Now, in the past, I've supported other autistic people when they might need to go to partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient services. So I guess when I have went there with, with these folks is that, one question in my mind was how autistic people are specifically supported in these settings. And I really wondered about people's sensory needs that may not even be thought of or not thought about too often. What's been your kind of overall experience in staff taking into account uh, the differences that autistic people might encounter in these settings? I've actually never worked in, a, you know, in an IOP or PHP setting yet in my career for necessarily this population. But, you know, from what I know about them, at least in my state, is that there is a, at least from certain hospitals, a, a focus on creating a dispensary friendly environment for, for patients. I've worked with a lot of children and adolescents, uh, you know, recently, you know, discharged who have come back with these neat little, you know, fidget tools, certain things that I never even really knew existed, and also some other some other methods. Like there's some methods that I hear about going on at you know at Bradley Hospital. I've had a lot of patients, you know, triage from who, you know, really kind of you know they really learned some interesting regulation tools over there and strategies, but. I'm sure there can there can always be more of an improvement on this. You know, there are obviously plenty of autistic youth and adolescents and, you know, and adults, too, where a hospital environment can be incredibly unsettling. And uh, I'd like to hope that we move further away from, you know, the 
white walls and barren clinical scenery in a hospital, but making, you know, their waiting times, making them uh, more tolerable for people, providing tools for them, things they can fidget with. And, you know, just being flexible, you know, staff being flexible in how they meet the needs of autistic people who are in a psychiatric treatment facility. I apologize if I wasn't able to really totally answer that question. I just haven't really had too much experience kind of in this career-wise. And beyond this interview, how can uh, our listeners learn more about you? Uh, So... I'm, you know, full disclosure, I really struggle with computers. I have a website technically. It's called The Autistic Therapist. I'm still around the name. But it's really just a frame of a website. It's Wix. I did start an active blog on Patreon, and I can certainly try to find the link to that. It should be under, you know, Mike Macedo, or as a creator and my as far as my credentials i'm a licsw i'm a licensed independent clinical social worker in the state of rhode island and yeah i mean what i really want to do with that is create a the blog is set up so that's really kind of the most important thing i have a never-ending goal to create a, a blog that I can contribute to and post on publications like the mighty and everything. And, you know, through LinkedIn, I'd love to work as a consultant. I think we have a kind of a mutual connection of uh, Becca, Lori Hector, definitely a, a major influence for me. I've you never know, speak before and that someone I'd love to connect with just, you know, just another example of someone who's managed to, be able to use user platform or create her platform, I should say, you know, through a website and consulting and everything and just kind of figuring out how she how she did that. But that's something that I, I hope to sort of use with, the, you know, my Patreon and my website when it is up and running. Talked about uh, executive functioning coaches. I really need a, a coach to help me with this kind of stuff. Not the most tech savvy with it. It's almost like I don't know. It's almost like I have like object permanence issues when it's something on like a screen and not something that's just like physically in front of me, if that makes sense. (laughs) Absolutely. So um, for the listeners of this podcast, if they've listened uh, long enough, they know that I absolutely love running. And when I talk to other autistic people, they find out that they're uh, runners or were runners. I'm bound to uh, talk to them about it. So uh, I learned you were recruited and participated in in cross-country and track at uh, Rhode Island. Is it the University of Rhode Island or Rhode Island University? Uh, It's uh, Rhode Island College. Rhode Island College. Okay, okay. Providence, yep. Okay, Rhode Island College. So I I definitely wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about that experience and what was maybe your yeah. favorite part or your takeaway of the uh, college running experience? So, yeah, I mean, I wasn't a very competitive runner in high school. Uh, I came from a pretty low mileage program. And I mean, I was only four years into doing any kind of competitive sports. But I really found a lot of success in cross country and track 
in college I never did in high school. I ended up being team captain and you know MVP of my cross country teams. I set some notable school times and almost made all New England for D3. I was a 10K, 5K runner. So when I was a freshman, I began to improve right away. And I don't know, maybe it was a growth spurt or something. Probably not likely. I'm not even 5'4". <laughs> but all of a sudden, I felt there were certain expectations placed on me compared to high school. I handled them well without letting them go to my head and affect my performance. I kind of think I did that in high school a bit. Well, in high school, I learned how to run. But in college, I learned how to race. And I think some of this pressure might have taken some of the fun out of running. You know, indoor track meets would literally take up eight to 10 hours of my Saturday. A week before finals, I'd be at the Har- you know, at Harvard for like literally 12 hours. I was stuck doing distances that were just too short for me. You know, like 3K and 5K, you know, an indoor, that might as well be a long sprint for me. I'm not that type of runner, (laughs) you know, and I had a lot of expectations placed on me as, you know, cross country captain and my school's main top main 10 K runner. But I had my best year, my senior year, you know, I went all out. I sacrificed my body, had a string of injuries post-college, but you know, I have memories that I'll cherish forever and post-college run for a few club teams. I, I run for a club team now in Boston. I've had some really great years and, you know, some bad years, again, injuries. I don't know if I'll ever hit my college PR ever again, <laughs> but I'm in my prime long-distance running years. I'm a marathon runner now, and distance is similar to that. So, you know, I'm 34 now. I have, I have a good probably 10 to 11 years left in the marathon to be competitive. So maybe even more, who knows? But uh, I still have a lot to prove. My college years were definitely not my peak. I'm definitely still chugging along but the main difference is i'm having more fun running now has become more of a a dual role for me and a therapeutic one i always 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 encourage my clients right now i work in uh in rhode island it's a social emotional learning center called social sparks it's really growing see a lot of folks you know with asds but also neurodivergent clients of all kind and see more adults It's more holistic. I definitely always encourage running, spending time outdoors. I'd love to find ways to do that with some clients while protecting confidentiality and HIPAA. But I don't wear headphones. I only run outdoors. I don't do treadmills. I need to have the full immersive outdoor experience using all my senses. And it's... In addition to other forms of therapeutic intervention, obviously, I see a therapist myself, you know, medication, but running is right up there with everything else. I can relate to a lot of that. I hate the treadmill, love running outside, Uh, certainly. I'm interested, at the beginning, you know, of our conversation, you talked about, as a kid, having gross motor challenges, but then how did that kind of relate to kind of you're running and becoming a fast runner. How did all that work? I really, I mean, you know, I had certain issues. They weren't like super profound. I mean, it took me a while to learn how to cut with scissors and tie my shoes. I even, I still take forever to tie my shoes, but you know, I was just never really an athletic kid. And uh, one thing I didn't mention, I I don't know if we have time to go over like the good attention, bad attention or not, but um, when I was uh, in fifth 
grade, I actually, I actually developed a benign brain tumor and hydrocephalus. So I, I was incredibly, I had to go through a year and a half of chemo and I became very significantly underweight, no energy, you know, just very fragile, felt incredibly fragile. You know, I had a VP shunt implant in my head. I still have it by the way. And, you know, just the tools used for chemotherapy, you know, I still actually still kind of have them. I really, I, I felt like I had to be made, you know, treated like glass. Like I couldn't really do a lot of contact sports. I developed an interest in doing sports when I was in middle school because I was just, you know, I had to have a thing I was good at. Like I didn't feel I was really good at anything. And I was, you know, kind of an instigative, angry kid. I mean, I got bullied, don't get me wrong, but I started plenty uh altercations at the same time so i thought of soccer but then weirdest thing last day of eighth grade i hear on the intercom signups for high school cross country i literally didn't know what cross country was i just knew it had something to do with running so i signed up i didn't tell my parents right away i started jogging in like shoes i weren't even running shoes that summer and and then it just started i mean i think my first my freshman year, I was like, you know, five, my 5K best one was probably like in the 21s. But my sophomore year, I started running in racing class bikes and I got my time down to under 18 minutes. And just over the years, you know, my, my best 5K time in college was in the low 15s. And I'm a real late bloomer. So, you know, the longer the distance, the better I tend to be at it. And, I'm hoping that until I reach my main peak, I'll hopefully keep on improving. So, I mean, I don't know. I had horrible running form when I was in high school, but I think once my coach made me in college, you know, hit the weight room a little bit, work on arms and core, I think that really made the difference and I'm able to swim better. I use a rowing machine a lot. So I'm coordinated in those areas, but like you throw a football at me, I'm not going to catch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I'm, I will not throw a football at you, Michael, but if we ever happen to be in the same area, I'd love to go for a run with you. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's plenty of great places to run here in New England. And yeah, you know, I'm dealing with a little bit of a knee issues right now. I did some racing in the fall, but, you know, hoping to do some racing this spring and a marathon in the fall. We'll see. Just have to stay healthy. That's the key, staying healthy. Well, uh, yeah. really enjoyed uh, our conversation. Thanks so much for joining me. Likewise, my pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, taking your time and chatting with me. Thanks so much to Michael for the conversation. To learn more about Michael, please check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides neurodiversity affirming support by autistics for autistics through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit autismpersonalcoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories. And if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it, so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.